Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. A super quick heads up we're about to launch another 31 day read aloud challenge beginning May 1st. We've got literally thousands of kids committing to read aloud every day to their pets, to their siblings, to their grandma, to their stuffed dog. We have heard from so many of you that these 31 day challenges are game changers for your kids reading ability. So many struggling readers finish these challenges out as fluent readers. And so many of you tell us that your whole family's relationship with reading and books is transformed by taking the challenge. To get in on the free 31-day Read Aloud Challenge and watch your home be transformed by the power of reading aloud, head to rar31days.com. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hey, 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 Sarah McKenzie here, your host for the Read Aloud Revival podcast. I've been so excited to share this episode with you. I'll tell you what, we recorded this conversation in mid-February, and I told the rest of the Read Aloud Revival team that I was going to have to sit on my hands to keep from publishing it right away. (laughs) It's just that good. I'm talking to a cognitive scientist today who, well, doesn't sound like a cognitive scientist. That's because he's also a father of four kids. And he has an uncanny ability to take the best research and convert it into very practical strategies that we, ordinary parents, can put into practice in our homes. I was so inspired by this conversation. I just know you will be too. Stay tuned to the end because we have something big and wonderful happening next week at the Read Aloud Revival, and I don't want you to miss it. But I also don't want to delay this episode anymore. So I'm going to go ahead and turn to our conversation, but make sure you listen all the way through to the end today so you don't miss that announcement. Ready? Here we go. Dr. Daniel Willingham wants kids to read, but more than that, he wants kids to really find joy in reading. And so he studied a lot about what it takes to make that happen. Dr. Willingham is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, where he has taught since 1992. He earned his BA from Duke University and his PhD in cognitive psychology from Harvard. His research currently focuses on the application of cognitive psychology in K-12 and college education. A parent himself, he's taken his vast research and writes about it with candor, humor, and positivity, making it approachable for parents and teachers. He writes the Ask the Cognitive Scientist column in American Educator magazine and has been featured in the New York Times. He's the best-selling author of four books, all of which I think many of you listeners will be interested in. One of them includes Raising Kids Who Read. He's also written Why Don't Student Like School, among others. And today, I'm delighted to have him join me to talk about what it takes to raise kids who read. You're going to love hearing what he has to say. 
Hey, Dr. Willingham, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure to be here. Well, before we launch into our conversation, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work in your family? Sure. I'm, uh, as you said, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia. I've taught there since 1992. And my whole life really has been in school settings. I spent one year after college working on Capitol Hill. That brief glimpse of the political system up close was probably enough. And I rushed back to school, went to graduate school, uh, and have uh, been a professor since then. My wife is a teacher and has been for her whole career. And I have four children ranging in age from nine all the way up to 25. And in terms of our family life and and reading, I mean, I know it sounds like pretty predictable that a professor and a teacher would be, reading would take a a, a central role in our family life. And and I guess I guess we're sort of guilty of that stereotype, um, but it is it is true. All of my kids love reading. All my kids love books, and it is very much sort of woven into the fabric of our daily life. And so that was uh, in in no small part why why I wanted to write this book, raising kids who read. It was something that we sort of live all the time in our family. Well, I was really excited to see it. I'll tell you, I read the book in a day because I was stuck in the Phoenix airport for 11 hours that day on my way to a homeschool conference to speak at a homeschool conference. And so many people came up to me and said, what are you reading? They were really interested in it. So I show them the cover. And I mean, it was like complete strangers in an airport saw that what I was reading and, and thought, I think I need that. And I know that a lot of our podcast listeners, this is the number one thing they want for their kids. They want to raise kids who read, not who just can read, but who love to read and who do it for the joy of it which is something that you really emphasize in your book. And I so appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is something that really surprised me when I first started working on the book. One of the first things I thought to ask myself is, is it the case that most parents like the idea of their kids growing up to be leisure readers? I kind of thought that was probably true, but they didn't really know. And so I started looking in the literature to try and find some sort of survey of parents or something. I could not find one which really astonished me. And so I ended up doing a little survey on my own and surveyed several hundred adults throughout the U.S. and gave them sort of different activities that a teenager might engage in during their leisure time. And I told the people who I was interviewing, the average American teenager has about a little over five hours of leisure time each day. Here are six categories of ways they could spend their time. So one of them was reading, one of them was hanging out with friends, one of them was being outside, getting exercise and so forth. And then I said, allocate the five hours the way you think would be ideal for a teenager to allocate their time. Mm -hmm. And what I found was reading was the most preferred activity. American adults, and this didn't matter. This is really an interesting part of the survey, actually. It didn't matter whether people actually had teenage kids or didn't have teenage kids. Didn't matter whether the person was wealthy or not wealthy. Anyway, we sliced up the data. There was very, very high agreement that reading was the number one thing that people thought teenagers should do in their leisure time. And they wanted kids to spend a little over an hour each day reading. Unfortunately, we know from surveys of what teenagers actually do is not remotely uh, an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, the estimates vary, but one, one of the better studies indicates it's on average about six minutes a day that teenagers spend reading. And of course, what that really means is most of them are not reading at all. Right. And there's a small subgroup who, you know, several times a week, they're reading for a few hours a day or something like that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Why do you think that is? I mean, I know we, you dig into that into your book, but 
maybe we can just give the listeners a little peek into why is that? Why is if, if so many parents want so much for their children, their teenagers specifically to be readers, how come so few teenagers are actually reading for leisure? A lot of people blame technology for this, that we've got these new digital technologies and kids are, you know, just texting their friends all the time or they're gaming or they're, they've got much better access to music and video content. I think that's probably not the real reason, though, because we've been measuring how much time kids spend reading for decades, and it really hasn't changed that much. So when the new technologies came along, they didn't really displace reading because kids already were not reading very much. Okay, okay. So that's, you know, in a way, it's like, okay, the technology is not to blame, but not really for a happy reason. It's that there wasn't enough reading to really disappear when technologies became available. Smaller children do read quite a bit more than teenagers do. So one of the ways I construe the problem is how can you keep it going? So if teenagers read about six minutes a day, a day for er, in early elementary, it's more like 36 minutes a day. They're reading, kids in early elementary are reading an amount that we would be fairly happy if that could be maintained, or at mm-hmm. least that would be a start. But attitudes towards reading, how kids feel about reading, is at its peak in first grade, and it drops every year thereafter, and the amount that kids read drops every year thereafter. So you've got a couple of things happening in the teenage years. One is that by that time, their attitudes towards reading is, it's not super negative on average, but it's kind of indifferent at best. And of course, that's an average. So half of the kids really do feel negative about reading. And then the other thing is there, there are a lot of things competing for teenagers' time, right? They're very social by that time, and so they've, they're, uh, they've got that on their mind. Uh, and schoolwork's more serious, and they've got more other you know, organized activities. Maybe they're on a sports team or something like that. So those are also pretty legitimate reasons that reading might get crowded out. Yeah. One of the things that I kept thinking of when I was reading your book was that I'm an adult who loves reading and who wants to make that a priority. But even I, you know, as a 34 year old, will find myself with my, you know, if my just being pulled in too many different directions. There's too many other things to do that I feel like I should be doing. So I feel guilty if I sit down with a book or and this is probably more frequent than I want to admit. My phone is right there. It's so hard for me to choose the book over the phone because it's like that human nature default to want to choose the thing that's going to take less effort. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is, I think if if I was asked to pick one piece of advice that I think is most central in how to encourage more reading in your kids, that's really it. And it's, it's a little bit, I would make it a little more broader than just take away their phone. Yeah. But what I would say is for parent, parents should keep in mind that if you want your child to choose reading, it really is a choice. It's not enough that they like reading. They have to like reading more than anything else that's available to them at that moment. So the analogy, I think I use this analogy in the book, it's like, my kids really like watermelon. If I, you know, say, if they ask, what's for dessert tonight, dad? I say watermelon. They're going to be fairly happy. But if I say, well, there's watermelon or you can have candy, candy's going to win every time. You know, <laughs> so you, it's not enough that they like reading. They have to like reading most. So there are two things that I say that implies. One is make it for parents, make it really, really easy for them to choose reading. And the way to do that is have books very readily available in places that your kids typically get bored. This is, I think, the easiest way to start if you're a parent. If you want your kids to read more, 
notice when your kids get bored and put books in that location where they tend to get bored. So an obvious place would be if you drive, have a, a basket of books in the minivan Ooh. next to where your, where your child sits. Good idea. Put a basket of books in the bathroom. Parents always laugh about this, but it is, I, I told you my wife is a teacher. She recommends this to all her parents. An astonishing number come back to her and say, I can't believe it. Like, you know, he's in there 20 minutes. I'm wondering what's going on, but you know, he's picked up a book. Um, so that's a, that's a super easy way to start. The other thing is regarding this analogy of sort of watermelon to candy, I really do think most digital technologies are the candy. And I'm just like you, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the pull, the allure of that phone is very, very strong. And it's actually, as a psychologist, it's pretty interesting to me to try and speculate on, on why that might be, but we get a little far afield. But I, think, <laughs> I think the message here is you do need to think about time limits for technology. If you want to make some space for reading in your child's life, you know, at some point, if they've got a phone, the phone should be parked. There should be a limit on gaming and so forth. And this is, I, I'm not a fan of coercing your child into reading. I'm not a fan of rewarding your child to read. I want my children to choose to read, but I recognize that in order to make that choice more likely, I need to limit some of the other things that would, that would be enormous, to which enormous amounts of time would go. And then once they're there, it's like reading becomes a much more natural thing to pick. Looking right now on page 68 of your book, which is where you talk about how parents need a two-pronged strategy to keep screen time under control, first setting mm -hmm. limits and then promoting independence. And I, you've got some great ideas in here on um, setting limits. That minutes per day time limit uh, reminds me of Melissa Wiley, who's a children's book author that I interviewed on an earlier podcast, told me that her kids have a screen time slot from one to three in the afternoon. If you're going to get on a screen, that's the only time you can get on a screen. And her kids are homeschooled, so that works for them because they're home from school by then. But I like that, how it's the same time every day. And so it's just expected. So after a while, probably your kids would stop asking. Like my kids hound me for screens all day long because I haven't set a period of time like that. But I could see how if you institute an hour or two a day where screens can happen, then maybe the kids would stop peppering the parent with like, can I get on a screen? Can I get on a screen? And it would feel less of a battle. Exactly. Yeah. And it does. The other big advantage of that fixed time per day is not only do they stop asking you, but also I feel like it turns into a bookkeeping nightmare if you say you have this many minutes per day, yes. because then the child's like, okay, well, I'm going to, I want to bank some time. So you're constantly <laughs> in this discussion with your child about how many minutes you have left. And then the child's like, oh, but remember then like it, uh, the windows started reloading and so that shouldn't count. So I should get an extra five minutes. And <laughs> you like, must know my son. <laughs> this, is, this is a conversation I do not want to have, you know, getting into this, this sort of detail. So yeah, that's another reason I really like the, the business about uh, just having a fixed time per day. I also another love thing, how you mentioned in here, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I love how you mentioned stick to your guns. The hardest part of limiting screen time is the whining. Because for me, that is so easily true. The hardest part about keeping to it is just the fact that when everybody starts whining, it's way easier to say, okay, just half an hour than it is for me to stick to my guns and say, I'm really sorry that you're bored. You know, you can do this, this or this, or you, but you have to kind of get out of my face with your whining. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, at some point I just became pretty merciless about this. I mean, and, and the point being really, you know, when my, I thought my child was old enough to be 
resourceful about figuring out something to do on their own. Because, yeah, I mean, there is this feeling that you're sort of enabling them if you're sort of like, yeah, if you're bored, the thing to do is to turn to a screen. I mean, I think almost any parent would say like, yeah, right, I, you know, I get that. I want my child to be resourceful and sort of figure out how to entertain themselves and, and figure out something to do when they're, when they're feeling a little bit bored. Another thing while we're on this subject that I think is, is really important is some amount of coordination with other parents. And I think I mentioned in the book, you know, when, if, if your kids are little and they're going on a play date, my wife and I would always mention that to other parents that we, uh, you know, we're, we're not really doing screens so much at our house. And the response was always positive. And parents would always say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like if they're having a play date, like why should they watch a video or something? They should do something else. But if we didn't remember to say that, it surprises how often that could sort of turn into something that they would do. So I think it's good to coordinate with other parents. This becomes, I think, even more important when kids are teenagers, because one thing is if you're trying to delay getting your child a phone, they are really going to feel out of the social swim. And I've had many, many parents say to me, like, I didn't really want to get a phone, but I mean, I felt terrible. Every single other child in their class had a phone. Or So I certainly get that. But this is, a, again, a place where coordination with other parents might help. So if you can agree with your child's best friend, say, that after 8.30, the phone is going to get parked, then she knows, like, I, you know, I can't text my friend, my best friend anyway. You know, there's less of a feeling of being left out. So there, there are sort of compromises you can strike that both parents and children can live with, I think. Yeah, I like that. I also like that you're not going so extreme as to say, you know, my kids are not going to watch any screens or my teenager's never going to have a phone because I feel like sometimes as parents, we feel like if we don't go extreme, there's no way to moderate it. But exactly what you said on page 71, I'm just going to read this, is you said, my goal is to make space for reading so that by the time she's 10, sorry, you're talking about your daughter here, by the time she's 10, reading is so firmly socketed in her life that it cannot be threatened by an obsession with gossip websites, the latest video game, or anything else. And I like that as I underlined this and wrote, this is the goal, uh, because I like how you put the focus on making space for reading. Our job isn't to, you know, teach our children that all screens are just life suckers and then, you know, books are so much better, but just to give them the space to fall in love with reading and so that becomes a part of who they are so that when they get older, they can't help but think reading is something that I do. Yeah, that's, you put it, I think, nicer than I did. I mean, <laughs> that's exactly it. It's, it's really about self-image. It's about self-identity. I want my children to think of themselves as readers. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about a little bit more about how to help our kids enjoy reading when so many kids see reading as something they do for school or something that is assigned to them. What can parents do to help their kids actually see reading as something they want to do in their free time? So one thing I've already suggested is making it readily available more or less everywhere so that kids see it as they see print as something that offers an opportunity for fun, for entertainment. There's actually really interesting research showing that parents' attitudes towards print also matters to how kids think about print, which when you think about it, what, the way I just said it, it makes perfect sense, but a lot of parents don't think about it. So parents who are very, very concerned about their children being good readers, and the reason they, the parents think that is because reading is important for success in school those parents are less likely to have kids who enjoy reading and read in their free time than parents who see reading as a venue for entertainment. And what's even more amazing is 
it's those kids with the second set of parents, the kids of parents who see reading as entertainment, those kids end up being better readers in school than the kids with parents who think you have to be successful in reading because it's important for success in school. Mm. So parents' attitudes towards what reading is for, that also matters. Another factor that parents might consider is the message that kids are getting about reading from school. So I'm now thinking about older kids, upper elementary, middle school through high school. So I don't think that kids at all are getting explicit messages about reading from school that are going to be negative. No way. Every teacher likes the idea of reading. They want their students to read. But at the same time, there's sort of implicit messages that kids might get about what reading is. Think about what reading is like when you're in school and you're in early elementary. What reading is like is you read stories. There's a whole lot of choice. Right? So the purpose is really enjoyment. It's to read a narrative, enjoy the narrative. If you're not enjoying it, it's perfectly fine to toss it aside and read something else most of the time. As kids progress through school, choice gets greatly restricted or much more often eliminated. If there's an assignment that you read something about the Civil War, you can't go to the teacher and say, listen, I'm just not feeling this book. I really, you know, you're not going to be told to find something else. You're going you're gonna to be told, well, I'm sorry, but you have to read it. Also, reading is now put to different purposes. So it's not just about understanding a narrative and enjoying it. Now you're being given textbooks and you're being asked to read them for the purpose of memorization, where you take the book home, read a chapter, you're going to be quizzed on it on Friday. So the, uh, or you've also got the purpose of research. You know, you're reading books or flipping through, trying to find little nuggets because you're working on a project, for example. So one of my concerns, and there's, there's not good research on this, I should be clear. This is not like a research-proven thing. I've talked with some people who are experts on attitudes and reading, and they think this is pretty plausible. That for at least some kids, part of the reason their attitude towards reading gets worse as they get older is they confuse these different purposes of reading. So reading becomes associated with difficult mental work, which fair enough, that's very often what reading is when you're in school. But that doesn't mean that all reading is like that, right? And they forget that when I'm reading for pleasure, I can read whatever I want. If I'm not enjoying it, I can toss it aside. I can peek at the ending if I want to, right? Just reading reading the way reading used to be. So one thing that parents can do is encourage their kids to remember that this is what reading for pleasure means and that it has all these, all these wonderful attributes. A lot of our listeners are homeschoolers, and I think sometimes we feel this pressure to assign really high-quality reading to our kids at the expense of letting our kids have this time with just things that might be enjoyable, you know, I don't know, Calvin and Hobbes or comics or things like that. So I love what you say about how before a child can develop taste, they must develop hunger. Can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, relieving the pressure some parents feel about having their kids only read, you know, classics in the highest quality literature? Yeah, I mean, I would encourage parents as a very general rule of thumb what you want to do is just stretch them a little bit. Wherever they are at the moment, you want to just broaden their horizons a little bit. But that's going to have to happen in baby steps. And in 
if your child right now just does not see print as something that is worth his or her time at all and would never think of picking up a book if it weren't required, then yeah, I would say like, how in the world could you be worried about them reading junk? Right now, what you're trying to do is get their mind open to the idea that reading is something that can afford pleasure. So if it's Calvin or Hobbes or whatever it is, I mean, what I encourage parents to do, parents who are in that situation, I encourage them, think about what your child really loves, is really passionate about, and find some written material where they're going to get new access to that thing they love through print. So if it's, you know, the Walking Dead television show, that's what they love, you know, find some book that's about the Walking Dead. Even if you think it's junk and, you know, maybe I don't know anything about this show, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> whatever, pick a really junky show if that one's not junky. You know, if you think this reading material is really junky, fine, it is. But like, that's not your goal right now. Your goal right now is to just get them thinking, oh, reading is sometimes fun and interesting. And from there, you know, you keep it going. And again, just stretching them a little bit at a time. And again, it's, you know, you, you have to think about what your goal is for reading here. I mean, reading the classics is wonderful and it's enriching and you learn about people in different ways and you learn about language and you learn about vocabulary. When you're talking about books that you might see as sort of junky, maybe, so maybe your kids are getting a subset of that. You know, comic books actually are pretty good on vocabulary. This has been, there are, uh, you know, people who assess the, the richness of vocabulary of different sorts of texts. And so, you know, that's another way to think about it is, all right, so this is not my ideal in some sense, but it's uh, my child is still getting something out of this. And again, clearly they're getting pleasure and there's other things they could be doing in their leisure time that maybe you would like even less. Yeah. Okay. So we'll link to this in the show notes, but we just published a post at the Read Aloud Revival on series books that help struggling readers become voracious ones. And one of the, the points I try to make in that post is that if you have a child who's 8, 9, 10 and is really struggling with reading, they are not enjoying reading yet because, I mean, if you try to do something where you have to sound out every third or fourth word, it's a slog. It can be really difficult. And so I'll see uh, parents feeling hesitant to let their kids jump into easy to read series or feeling like they have to have their child decode every word. So I've got some strategies in that post for getting them hooked on a really fun, light series that makes them fall in love with reading, and then some strategies for using specific times when your kids are reading. I I mean, when you're sitting there doing your phonics lesson, you're going to ask them to decode and you're going to try and challenge them that way. But when they're sitting there trying to read Magic School Bus or Hank the Cow Dog or even Calvin and Hobbes, and they say, what's this word? If you just tell it to them, then they start to realize that the story is actually really engaging and they start to enjoy reading for reading's sake. And I think that goes a long way toward helping them become kids who want to read in their free time rather than kids who think this is hard, this is schoolwork, I'd rather be doing anything else except for this. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, one way that if you encounter a parent who is finds that a little tough to swallow, here's another way to that maybe would help that parent make sense of it. In the book, I point out that there are three big components of reading that we want to pay attention to. One is fluent decoding, the second is comprehension, and the third is motivation. And so one way to characterize what you just said is a parent may be really fixed on the fact that their child, 8, 9, 10, is not as fluent a decoder as the other kids in the class, and so every opportunity is seen as an opportunity for the child to work on decoding. And what you are saying is you don't want to ignore motivation. This is an opportunity when the child is reading Calvin the Hobbes or Magic School Bus or whatever that 
whatever it is, this is the, the time when the child's getting that peek at uh, how wonderful reading can be. And that's going to make it all but easier when they really are you know, putting nose to the grindstone, working on fluent decoding to know, yeah, but this is going to pay off because I know that reading is fun. Yeah, exactly. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? <laughs> fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. Okay, so you've written some really interesting things about reading and rewards and praise. So can you tell us what you've learned about rewarding our kids for reading and how that impacts them in the long term? Sure. So, I mean, this is a, has been a big topic in social psychology since the 1970s, rewards in particular. And the upshot of that literature is that the, way, the, way, the conclusion that I, that I offer in the book is that rewards should not be the first thing that you try. The concern with rewards is that when you reward someone for doing something, it changes their attribution their, of why they did it in the first place, their understanding of why they did it. So if I reward you for reading, if I didn't reward you for reading, you think, and I ask you, why'd you read? You say, well, you know, I read because I thought it would be interesting. It was kind of fun or whatever. If I reward you, now the reason that you read is quite plain, which is I read because you promised me a reward, <laughs> right? So there are lots of studies indicating that if you like something and then I reward you for doing it, you will definitely do more of it uh, so long as I'm rewarding you. But once the rewards stop, you actually do it less than you initially did it before the rewards began. Interesting. And the interpretation is that it is, you know, in a colloquial way of thinking about it is it's like, well, you know, you're not paying me anymore. Why should I read ever? Right. And that that makes you read even less than you did initially before the rewards were offered. Now, praise is a little bit different because rewards almost always come with an explicit understanding. Now, you know, it's sort of a bargain. If you read you know, this many books, then you'll earn this much money or whatever the reward is. Praise doesn't work like that. There's usually, no, you know, parents don't usually say, if you finish that book, I will praise you right, later. And so <laughs> praise is more spontaneous, you know, and, and so that undercuts this 
attribution business. So I don't think to myself, well, I did that to get praise because I didn't know, you know, when I started doing it, I, I wasn't anticipating getting yeah. praise. Praise still has a negative aspect to it, though, which is parents don't praise kids for doing things that the parents figure the kid enjoys. That's so true. Yeah. Like right? job, you don't, read, yeah, watching, you don't say, video Sarah, game. you know, the way you ate that cake was awesome. I'm so <laughs> proud of you for eating that cake. Right. You know, I just know that my child ate cake because she loves cake. Right. And so when we praise our children for reading, we're sending this message. This is not something that I think you would have done on your own. This is something I'm trying to reinforce. I'm worried about whether or not it's really a likable enough activity. So an alternative I would I would offer for parents, because it, it is irresistible, I mean, especially when the child who doesn't read very often finally does read. You know, you, you want to somehow acknowledge that. And especially a child who's a struggling reader, they may want it acknowledged also. So the way I think about it is, you know, you can show appreciation without necessarily praising. You can ask about the book, right? So by paying attention to the child, that's, you know, a, a much more subtle form of reward and praise is ask them about it and discuss it and say like, yeah, you know, I really noticed you were really into that book. Tell me about it. You know, let me hear about that book. In a way, this is sort of the way adults interact with one another around reading, mm-hmm. right? If you've read a great book, I'm not going to, you know, or I see you finishing a book, I'm not going to praise you, but I'm going to talk to you about it and ask your opinion about it. And that, that's actually pretty fun to have your opinion solicited and talk about it. I always say, you know, as soon as you can, take your child seriously as a reader, because I think you're much more likely to gain currency and gain interest from your child by interacting with them that way, as opposed to, you know, sort of being the parent who's, uh, you know, the, the rule enforcer. I have no aversion to doing that. We've already talked about that in the context of screens. But I think with reading it more often backfires than helps. Yeah, I love this because at the Read Aloud Revival, one of the things we teach inside membership is to treat your children as they're reading books like you would if you were going to a book club. So there's such a different way you talk about books with your book club peeps, you know, than if you are sitting there drilling your child to find out if they really comprehended what they're reading. So asking reading comprehension questions about the different things that happened in the plot of By the Great Horn Spoon by Sid Fleischman is very different than asking a book club type question and just having an engaging conversation that just feels different, has a different has, has a book club vibe rather than a teacher student drill vibe. I think that goes a really long way too toward just sort of reframing what reading is for your child. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, it does send a very clear message about how you see reading and what interactions around reading are like. And it also sort of gets away from the the reading comprehension check question and the sort of which has a much more punitive feel to it. And I would add that for children who are sort of in lower elementary and they're just learning how to read and write, I would say the same thing can be can apply. I talk about this a little bit in the book. A lot of times when kids are just learning how to read, parents kind of want to, in a way, give them an opportunity, but in a way sort of check how they're doing. So they ask them to read stuff. They'll ask their first or second grader to read something when it's kind of plain the parent could do it themselves. And so clearly the child knows they're they're kind of checking up on me to see how that's going or they even more, they want me to practice. 
So one of the things I recommend in the book is look for opportunities where literacy is logical, where it's actually doing some work for the child or doing some work for you. So, you know, obvious examples are like leaving notes in your child's lunchbox, or in fact, when it makes sense, ask your child to write a note to leave it for another parent or for another child, that sort of thing. Look for places where doing some reading actually makes sense in the moment because it's going to be useful either for the child or, you know, in it can be sort of an invented context in which you need help where they can do a little bit of reading. I like that. That reminds me of some strategies I've heard people talk about revolving around math, whereas if you have a child that's, you know, thinking, why do I ever need to use this? Just help them kind of in an organic way have to do things like add up the grocery bill when you're at the grocery store and things like that where they see that math is actually applicable to their real life. So it feels more relevant to them than it might otherwise. Kind of reminds me of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of situation where I would try and figure out some way that I could appear busy so that I would say, could you add up this bill for me? Because I've got to do this right now. They get to be a helper, right? Instead of being the one who's being quizzed. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So what about e-readers? We have a lot of questions from our audience about letting their kids read on Kindle or other kind of e-readers. Can you speak to that a little bit from a scientist's point of view? Is there negatives to that? Should we be careful about how often we let our kids read on e-readers? That kind of thing. Sure. So I think there actually is a big database of research on this. This has been really, even though Kindles are relatively new, So let me first talk about what I see as the pros of e-readers. I think one big pro is access, especially if you've got a child who's, you know, a little bit of a reluctant reader. The gee whiz aspect is probably going to last almost no time at all. So in other words, a kid who doesn't like to read is not going to read just because it's now on a Kindle instead of paper. Got it. But the good thing is that if you have a Kindle and a child hears about a book that they're actually kind of curious about, you can get it immediately. Instead, so you can sort of strike while the iron is hot. Instead of saying, oh, okay, you know, your friend told you that that book's kind of fun and you're curious about, okay, well, like, we'll go to the bookstore tomorrow. By tomorrow, it may almost be too late, right? So that, that's one thing that's good. Access is good. Portability is obviously good. That's one of the reasons adults love Kindles. In terms of reading comprehension, most of the studies indicate that there may be a little hit to comprehension, but not huge and not enough that people care. So it probably is. I'm going out a little bit on a limb here because it's most studies are kind of squishy on this. My guess is that comprehension on a Kindle is probably not quite as good as it is on paper, but most of what, and this is actually the critical part. Most of what you read on a Kindle, you're reading for pleasure, so you don't care that much. So maybe you're you're getting 94% understanding of the book instead of 96%. You don't really care. You were just reading this to you know sort of get lost in the narrative and enjoy it. You weren't trying to commit it to memory or anything. Now that changes radically when we start talking about textbooks on Kindle-like devices, on tablet devices. There, the data are really clear. Comprehension definitely takes a hit. And that's partly because the material that you're reading is more complex. It's in a different genre. It's not a narrative form. And narratives are easier to understand than other genres. And you're reading it for another purpose. You're not reading it to get lost in the narrative. You're reading it to study and learn new difficult material. So e-textbooks are, so far, they're still struggling to get those to really exploit effectively everything that could be done 
an electronic format. The final thing to think about, and this will not surprise parents at all, if you've got an e-reader that is web-enabled, then that's a huge distraction. And if you can flip from the book over to, you know, Facebook or whatever else it is, uh, studies show reading gets interrupted all the time as kids are flipping between different apps. Uh, So your intuition about what would probably happen there seems to be right on the money. (laughs) Well, I even know that as an adult, it goes back to that whole lack of self-discipline, even though I, I love reading and I want to be a reader. I used to, I have a Kindle app on my iPhone. I used to bring my iPhone to bed to read it because then I don't have to use a book light. If my husband's already asleep, I can just read on my Kindle. That was my idea. (laughs) But what would more often happen is I would start reading on my Kindle and then I go, oh, I wanted to check that one thing on Facebook or, you know, I should just check my email one more time. And I'll I'll flip through my other apps and realize it'll probably be 15 or 20 minutes before I even realize I wasn't going to do that. I was only going to read. And so now I can't even bring my phone near my bed because I have, I realized, you know, that pull is really, really strong. So I can only imagine it being stronger for a child who maybe doesn't even have as strong of a desire to, you know, be a reader or as limited amount of time to have to read that kind of thing. So absolutely agree. Yeah. Okay. So before we go, I would love to hear some of your favorite books that you've read with your kids or that your kids have read, or maybe books that influenced you as a child. Wow. The books that I really remember my parents reading to me, I actually think I've mentioned these in Raising Kids Who Read. I more or less memorized Winnie the Pooh from hearing my mother read it, read it aloud to me. Absolutely love that book. Mm. And of course, retain a a really strong fondness for it today as well. And I also love Horton Hears a Who, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) I loved it because of the story. And also if you, because of, you know, it's just a fun story, but also if you know the story, The theme there is that someone who seems sort of insignificant ends up being really important in saving the day. And I think as, you know, sort of a a low to the ground uh, three-year-old, I can really identify with that possibility. Yeah, you know, (laughs) who knows? Maybe someday I'll. And when I got a little bit older, the first series that I remember getting really excited about was uh, the Henry Huggins books. And those are the first ones when, as as an independent reader, I sort of went through all of them with mounting excitement. So yeah, those are probably the big ones from my childhood. Okay, I'm excited you just mentioned Henry Huggins. This podcast is airing on April 5th. And if you're listening to this, April 12th is Beverly Cleary, the author of Henry Huggins, her birthday, her 100th birthday. And oh it's also I know, it's so exciting. And it's also Worldwide Dear Day, Drop Everything and Read. And so if you haven't seen it yet, head to readaloudrevival.com because we have a fun whole family deer kit for you so that your whole family can celebrate Drop Everything and Read Day with some really fun, simple ideas for kids of all different ages. That's free and you can get it at readaloudrevival.com. And we're also going to be using a hashtag on social media that day to share pictures of our families dropping everything to read on April 12th and celebrating the life and work of Beverly Cleary. So make sure you head to readaloudrevival.com because that's coming up very soon. It's going to be so much fun. So yeah, I'm excited. When you said Henry Huggins, I thought, yay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I am all over it. I'm so excited about this. Well, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Before we go, let me make sure that our listeners know where they can get your books. So danielwillingham.com. And we will have a link in the show notes directly there. I have read Raising Kids Who Read and also Why Don't Students Like School, both wonderfully fabulous. I know that the listeners to this podcast would be very interested in both of those. I have not yet read When Can You Trust the Experts? So that's another one on my to-read stack. 
Is there anywhere else we can send our listeners to connect with you or find your work? You know, DanielWillingham.com has any article that I could, without breaking copyright laws, publish okay. uh, on the internet, is you can find there. So, and, I, and there are actually a fair number of the uh, things I've published over the years that uh, sort of a cognitive psychologist looking at education and parenting. So be grateful for anybody who wants to stop by. Wonderful. What I love most about these books is that you come at them with all of the knowledge of cognitive scientists, but you write them for parents. And so I, as a parent, don't feel like I'm listening to a scientist talk about research and kind of more difficult. It's just very conversational and engaging. And you have a way of making the research uh, very practical for me as a parent. So what does this mean for me as a parent, you know, in the world today with kids who are distracted by phones and technology, but who wants to raise readers, that kind of thing. So it's very accessible. I would encourage all of our listeners to go check them out. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. My name is Espen. I come from Hudson, Wisconsin. My favorite book is Who Do You Love? And I like it because of the flip-flops and the feelings of the mom. How old are you? Four. My name is Elias, and I am five. I like the little book because it has lots of little people in someone's house. And it's really fun to listen to. Hi, my name is Diane, and I'm from California, and I'm six years old. And my favorite book that my grandma reads me is Ferdinand. And I like the part where he gets sung by a bee. Hi, my name is Blake. And I live in Oklahoma. I'm nine years old. One of my favorite books I've read is called Bridie of the Grand Canyon, which is about a little burrow named Bridie. And one of his best friends is named Oldtimer. And it's an exciting book. Maybe you should go read it. Hi, my name is Stella. My age is six. I live in Nevada. One of my favorite books are Wonders of Nature by Jane Warner Watson, illustrated by Eloise Book. I have been learning about the kangaroo now. They are cool, and they are also kind of funny because they jump like kangaroos. Hi, my name is Shaitanya. I need a song. I love and the band Vada. And my favorite books are Baba and Okay, Baba. Bye bye. Good stuff, right? Great book recommendations from the kids, as always. And by the way, that last book recommendation was for books by Eric Carl, in case you missed it. And an utterly fabulous conversation with Dr. Willingham. As always, we'll have links in the show notes to Dr. Willingham's books and to anything else we referred to during the show. I told you there was an announcement coming at the end, and yes, I actually referenced it during my chat with Dr. Willingham. 
April 12th is Worldwide Deer Day. That's Drop Everything and Read Day. This day started as a spinoff from Beverly Cleary's Ramona Quimby series, in which the students celebrate a deer day. Well, now the whole world celebrates reading and the life and work of Beverly Cleary on April 12th because it's her birthday. And this year, it isn't just any birthday. It's Beverly Cleary's 100th birthday. Big deal. We're going to make sure we do it up right here at the Read Aloud Revival. Here's what you need to do. Head to readaloudrevival.com and grab your free Dear Celebration Packet. Inside, you're going to find some simple ways to celebrate reading and the life and work of Beverly Cleary with your kids. You'll even find some ways you can celebrate with friends. At our house, we're ditching the rest of our school day and we're doing Drop Everything and Read Day upright. We're going to have some friends over. We're going to dress up like book characters and do some other fun activities to celebrate reading. I can't wait. In addition, the whole community will be using the hashtag DearWithRAR to share photos of our kids dropping everything to read. So at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on April 12th, the whole world of Revivalers is going to do exactly what we should do on Dear Day. We're going to drop everything and read. So the whole think of all these kids all over the world reading at the exact same time. I get like goosebumps. I get so excited. We're also going to bomb social media with photos of our kids reading and celebrating books all day long using the Dear with RAR hashtag. So come play along. It's free. I think it'll be a memory your kids will remember for a long time. Go to readaloudrevival.com to get your packet. Okay. As always, I just love every one of you listening. You make building a family culture around books so much fun that we can all share it together. Thank you for listening. Thank you for committing to your kids. Thank you for doing your part to raise the next generation of readers and book lovers. And hey, until next time, go build your family culture around books. 